So now we've seen an ant, a wasp, a black widow, a spider, a tick, and now a beetle adapted into superheroes? When can studio execs take my butterfly bro script seriously? Hola, mi amigos, and welcome to a new episode of Post Credits with Gil Garcia. We are back to our regularly scheduled review content, and today I'm bringing you my review of DC's Blue Beetle. First and foremost, I would like to extend my extreme gratitude to everyone who reached out to me with positive feedback about last week's Guilty Pleasures episode. It was my most ambitious, difficult, and painstakingly made episode yet. I really appreciate those of you who listen to me rant about Biodome for about 30 minutes. (laughs) Um, But just in case you missed last week's announcement, I will be doing another Guilty Pleasures episode later in the year. And it's going to be a special holiday Guilty Pleasures episode in December. And we're going to be doing two movies that week. We're going to be doing the Arnold Schwarzenegger classic Jingle All the Way and Danny DeVito's Deck the Halls. (laughs) I cannot wait to record that later this year. But, you know, without further ado, let's talk about this week's high-flying, familia-centered superhero flick, Blue Beetle. Does the Blue Beetle live up to its incredibly deep comic book origins? Or is this movie a dung beetle? (laughs) Let's get into Act 1 and find out. Alright, so when Blue Beetle, an alien scarab, chooses college graduate Jaime Reyes to be its symbiotic host, bestowing the teenager with a suit of armor that's capable of extraordinary and unpredictable powers, forever changing his destiny as he becomes a superhero known as Blue Beetle. Blue Beetle is directed by Angel Manuel Soto, a Puerto Rican first-time theatrical film director with an area of expertise in virtual reality content creation, Solo Marajuena otherwise known as Miguel from Cobra Kai, playing the titular Blue Beetle, Jaime Reyes, Susan Sarandon as Victoria Cord, George Lopez as Uncle Rudy Reyes, Bruna Marquezine as Jenny Cord, and Belisa Escobedo as Milagro Reyes. I don't necessarily have a lot of familiarity with the comic of the Blue Beetle, I greatly recall the character from the Injustice video games and the animated movie, similar to how I felt in 2008 when Iron Man came out. I just knew of the character, but I can't actually claim that I am a fan of his, which for most enthusiasts and fanatics would label me as a casual or as a bandwagon. But I was very interested in this movie right off the bat for a few reasons, really. First and foremost, this is the first blockbuster Latino-led superhero film, which, as a Latino myself, meant that I was going to connect strongly with the references and the themes of family that are presented here. Secondly, I'm a huge fan of Cobra Kai, and to see our boy Miguel, Zolo Marajuena, get his chance to headline a summer tentpole film, it had me really curious. I think he's very talented, and he's a very charismatic young star, And I'm hoping that this movie would help skyrocket him to superstardom and lead his own franchise. And then, of course, number three. After Flash and Shazam! Fury of the Gods bombed horrifically, I wanted to see if this movie can serve as a launchpad for James Gunn's new DC 
cinematic universe. Unlike those other DC films, the review embargo lifted pretty early for this movie, which normally means that the studio feels confident in the quality and reception for Blue Beetle. And as expected, early reviews were promising, so my optimism grew exponentially about it. However, I did temper my expectations a bit going into this. With all the recent disappointments in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I really did want to go in with tempered expectations so that I wouldn't get disappointed. So with many factors at play, I think it's time we find out if Jaime Reyes can ascend to the ranks of the Peter Parkers, the Diana Princes, and the Tony Starks. So here it is, my review of Blue Beetle, which we call Act 2. Alright, so this part of the episode, if you haven't listened to my other reviews, is where we go into my review of the film. I give you tidbits about what I liked about the movie, what I didn't like, and most importantly, this section of the review is going to be spoiler-free. So I'm not going to go into plot details yet. That is all going to be saved for our post-credits discussion coming at the end of the episode. So let's get to it. Superhero fatigue is getting more and more to become a real thing. I think audiences are not going to the movies to see these kind of movies in particular like they used to. With Quantumania spearheading the discussion that the MCU is mid and that, you know, it's falling from grace spectacularly. I think it brought a lot of attention to superhero films just being very generic and and bland. And people right now are looking for alternative styles of storytelling and action. So on top of the superhero fatigue, we had many different problems going on with Warner Brothers going into this movie. They threw out the recipe for their films right after Justice League and Wonder Woman 84. The real reason is because of the lukewarm reception of those films, they knew right away they needed to turn everything around. They needed to change the narrative. And what better way to kind of turn things around than to bring in two heads of the studio that have history with successful movie franchises. So they brought in James Gunn, who directed the Guardians of the Galaxy trilogy, and Peter Safran as the heads of DC. And immediately once they came in, they were like, we're not taking any shit, we're cleaning house, and they're going to reboot the entire DC slate of films. But by wiping the slate clean, there were still a lot of films that were in development for the Snyderverse, as we call it. You know, like Black Adam and The Flash and Blue Beetle as one of them. Them throwing out the playbook meant that potential sequels to Man of Steel, Wonder Woman, Justice League, and Black Adam were going out the window, as well as new movies from Green Lantern and Cyborg that were to be in development in the early processes. So that had fans and audiences beginning to question Warner Brothers' logic here. Why reboot so many fan-favorite films and franchises within the DC Universe if so many of them are already established and are just barely beginning? Well, I'll tell you why. Return of Investment. Wonder Woman 84 was going to be a surefire hit. The original film struck gold. I mean, critically and universally, audiences and critics responded to that film really well. And Gal Gadot and Patty Jenkins were on top of the world. So it seemed like it was natural that Wonder Woman 84 was going to be the next big hit. It was going to spearhead uh, Wonder Woman into leading in 
us into the next chapter of the Justice League universe. But Wonder Woman 84 was a complete fucking disaster. That movie has so many issues. And the fact that it was put on Max for everyone to watch during the pandemic, everyone began turning on Warner Brothers, especially Gal Gadot and Patty Jenkins. And people began to question, well, if we're going to give so much power over to Patty Jenkins to run this universe, why was Wonder Woman 84 such a big disaster? How can we trust the universe to continue to go on with these lukewarm and mediocre films? Not only that, the core characters that were set to lead the Snyderverse were all falling apart. There was turmoil at every single corner. You got Ezra Miller's chaotic behavior, and that's another episode in of itself. You have Ben Affleck, who is uh, like fighting alcoholism. And then even Ray Fisher, cyborg, he was at war actively against Warner Brothers and Joss Whedon over his treatment on the set of the films The Justice League and um, Batman vs. Superman. It was very evident that new blood and direction was needed to get a hold of all the chaos that was happening. It was by no means a popular decision, but it was necessary for James Gunn and Peter Safran to come in and clean house. I mean, Snyder fans to this day, the well-mannered and socially kind-hearted people that they are, still harass James Gunn for his decision to scrap and reboot everything. It's kind of crazy. And not only that, the constant backlash and boycotts just created a lot of questions on whether any of these pre-existing film projects should continue to go on. And the Blue Beetle was kind of lost in the shuffle of that. They were This movie was kind of thrown in in the middle of that. And all intents and purposes were made to fit this movie into that franchise and be one of those additional side characters just thrown on to build the universe and to have his own spinoff films. But... You know, Warner Brothers spent a lot of money to film this movie, and they had to continue going on with it. They had to continue to produce it. Why? Well, because unlike Flash, Aquaman, The Lost Kingdom, and Shazam! Fury of the Gods, I think the studio knew that this movie can be removed from the DC Universe without the Supermans and Batmans and Flashes sinking their claws into the narrative storytelling here. You know, James Gunn approached director and Angel Manuel Soto and gave him free reigns to make the movie he envisioned for Jaime Reyes without any restrictions to keeping it within the Justice League canon. And that's particularly why I think I like this movie so much. You do feel that all the lessons that this company has learned over the years about how to build their cinematic universe and starting from scratch instead of just trying to ham fist Uh, superhero team-ups and all these weird awkward interactions between the characters they decided we need to go back to basics stick to one single character and give them a direct character arc and only focus on them going forward and it works here this movie works as a potential launch pad for james gunn and peter safran's new dc films but if they decide not to bring jaime reyes along in the new universe they don't have to This movie stands alone as a singular movie if they decide not to go forward with uh, Zolo Maraduena and Blue Beetle. There's a clear, precise focus and intent with this movie. As I mentioned before, there are no ham-fisted and cringy cameos from Gal Gadot, Ben Affleck, Jason Momoa, or Ezra Miller. This is all very much contained. It's a personal story about family, diversity, and embracing your greater purpose. And the hiring of Soto to direct this film 
was a very bold, but I think excellent decision. By going back to the personal story of Jaime Reyes and this character in particular, Soto brought some much-needed Latino flavor and unique action into this universe, into this film. And there are a lot of really cool sequences here. Uh, he uses a lot of Steadicam wide-angle shots um, in the middle of the action, which places you in the middle of the action. You'll see a scene where you're over the shoulder of the Blue Beetle, and he's whipping around some villains, and his tendrils are, are shooting at the bad guys and also like slamming them up into the ceiling and impaling them. It's really cool, and it's really innovative. And because they're utilizing all of Blue Beetle's potential and all his appendages, the armor... He also throws in uh, Kajada, who is the AI companion in the Scarab that symbiotically connects to Jaime Reyes. That AI companion adds a lot of humor to these scenes, so it's not just you watching dumb, mindless action. You're also getting some really nice uh, banter and comedy aspects to this movie. And I really engaged with it. I think it was pretty fun. Now, if you stare down the cast list... There are approximately maybe about a handful of big names you'll recognize, and I really appreciate the decision to fill the roster of actors with no-name Latinos and Latinas. We don't see these kind of characters in normal movies. You know, normally the studio would go after an A-lister to play Jenny Cord or a popular singer to play uh, Jaime's sister. We rarely see characters for who they are, and who they are in this movie is an incredibly relatable, familiar, everyday family. And it's very sweet and very sincere. The movie just feels unique and special of its own. I mean, we have everyone from the soap opera addicted abuela to the rambunctious minimum wage working younger sister. Family dynamic works here so well in so many levels. And I can tell you there are a bunch of scenes where Jaime was talking to a sister and it just reminded me of my own dialogue with my sisters and growing up and being kind of rivals with one another, giving each other tough shit when something happened. It, it was just fun and it really did speak to me as a Hispanic. I think Zolo Maraduena, he's wonderful in this movie. He's really charismatic, charming, empathetic. Jaime himself is a fun character. He's not annoying. He's not weak. He is not like uh, trying too hard. He presents the perfect amount of vulnerability and strength necessary to carry a film like this to ascend it from just mediocre garbage superhero trash to something a little bit more special. And I will say that I may not be the proudest Latino when it comes to my heritage, but I did feel a sense of pride and representation on screen pretty much the way that I imagine most African Americans felt when they first saw T'Challa don the Black Panther armor or when women everywhere witnessed Diana Prince like jump down and block a shot that was intended for Batman and Superman. This film has a lot of Latino flavor injected into it. It is the very soul and essence of this film. And it's very, very vivid in its imagining of Latino culture. And I think it needs to be seen on the big screen for every audience. I think people need to see a movie like this to understand the Latino experience in America. And to that point, I also want to applaud the writing in this movie. It doesn't shy away from using Spanish in the dialogue. Critical scenes have subtitles on them. And some scenes will not have any subtitles. 
And the purpose of that is to ingratiate you and to get you into understanding that, you know, Mexican-Americans, they turn on and off their Spanglish a lot. You know, we mix our languages quite a bit to exaggerate points and to make jokes and to be vivid with one another. It's done intentionally. Some audiences may not like that there is a mixture of Spanish in here, but I think the purpose of mixing the languages really adds to the authenticity of the Mexican-American experience. It's a wonderful touch. And like I said, it separates Blue Beetle from just being a generic superhero movie. I came out of the theater really impressed and satisfied with this movie. I, I really did. One thing I did with my Guilty Pleasure episode that I kind of want to start doing for every movie coming forward is I want to take a minute to highlight things I didn't like about films. It will give me a, a bit of a chance to flex my critical muscles a little bit more and show that I'm not just gushing about things, you know? Early in my show, I was gushing about everything. Mission Impossible, Oppenheimer, Barbie. But starting with Blue Beetle, I will begin to segment off a part of my reviews where I will talk about things I didn't like. These are the things I didn't like about Blue Beetle. It's b far from perfect. I, I love so much of this movie, but... This movie is very basic and by the numbers in the way that it's written and structured. There's so many stereotypical superhero tropes here that it kind of became eye-rolling and inducing nostalgia for other better movies, you know? It's crazy. This movie takes all the best and worst aspects of films like Shazam, Shang-Chi, Iron Man, and even the recent Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles film and kind of clusters them together. A lot of it works, but a lot of it will feel boring and tired out. And I think the reliance on these tropes kind of degrades the film from being like a 10 out of 10, being a spectacular standout in the DC pantheon. Instead, it's just an okay big budget action film with Latino flavor injected into it. On top of that, because it's so cliche and stereotypical, a few of the characters are very one note and not compelling at all starting off with Susan Sarandon's Victoria Cord. She hardly has any backstory. Her main motivation is that she was slighted for control of her company because her brother or her husband gained control because he was a man. Her ultimate goal is so cliche, and a lot of the time when she was on screen, I, I clocked out. I was like, okay, this is boring. Let's get back to Jaime. Let's get back to the the stakes. Let's, let's do something else other than focusing in on this melodrama going on with the chords that shit does not interest me at, at all another character that was very one note and this is going to be kind of controversial a lot of people will either say he's the highlight of the movie or a lot of people will say he's the detriment of the movie and that's george lopez for a lot of people george lopez is a clear comedic standout but for me i think he should have toned down his yelling and his over-the-topness just a little bit. He was like at an 11 the entire movie. If he was at a 9, I think it would have been fine. But he's constantly shouting, yelling. I mean, there's even a blatant fart joke near the finale of the film. And it just kind of breaks the immersion, you know. For everything I said about there being like unknown actors and people that we don't recognize on the casting, George Lopez was one of these actors they brought in that's kind of like a big name and, and had to bring asses into the seats. I don't think he's very good. <laughs> uh, some of his comedy works, but overall, I think he just brings with him a lot of excess baggage. And I mean, to that effect, 
there was a lot of controversy surrounding one of the lines of dialogue he delivers in this movie. His character, Uncle Rudy, is kind of a conspiracy theorist, and he makes this crazy joke in the middle of the trailer where he calls Batman a fascist. A lot of people took offense to that, and they are actively boycotting this movie because of that line in particular. But in the context of the film, because Uncle Rudy is such a tinfoil hat wearing piece of shit, it kind of makes sense. And I didn't find that joke offensive or badly implemented. I just, I think it coming out of George Lopez's mouth kind of added a little bit more fuel to the fire. And I think that allowed people to jump on and criticize this movie because of Lopez's casting. And not only that, George Lopez is a pretty erratic person in real life. This dialogue doesn't necessarily help his public image at all. For all the reasons that I don't particularly like Uncle Rudy, the fascist joke is one thing that I didn't mind. But yeah, I think George Lopez was a little bit too over the top. It almost felt like he was trying to steal the movie for himself. And, uh, you know, that, that kind of sucks because I think the rest of the core characters here can stand out on their own. Hopefully, in whatever sequel that they make, if there is a sequel, George Lopez comes back and he kind of gets turned down a little bit. They they do less with him. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about my verdict. I think DC has a quiet hit on its hands. People will sleep on this film due to the controversy of George Lopez and DC's creative direction about rebooting the entire universe. But I don't believe that every single superhero movie needs to set up a universe to be good or successful. Multiverses right now are being played out. Team-up movies are played out. And the Blue Beetle sticks to the tried-and-true singular hero formula. And for me, it sticks a landing for the most part. I would give Blue Beetle a a 3.5 out of 5 tortillas. (laughs) I highly recommend this movie for families, and I especially think Latinos need to show out to prove that Mexicans can lead films like this. It's not necessarily a movie that needs to be seen in IMAX or Dolby or that it has like some prophetic message like uh, Black Panther did. But I do believe that Blue Beetle is a movie that a lot of people will enjoy. If anything, the Blue Beetle will be a film that I can see a lot of people flocking to when it becomes available on Max in a few weeks. And it should benefit from getting a lot more eyes on it going forward. So that's my review of Blue Beetle. 3.5 out of 5 tortillas. And with that being said, let's talk about the reception, the budget, and filmmaking factoids in Act 3. Alright, as of recording this episode on Sunday morning, the box office has closed for the weekend and we have our final results. Coming in with a budget of $104 million dollars, The Blue Beetle finishes with the number one spot at the box office this week, dethroning Barbie for the first time since it launched on July 20th. Blue Beetle is going to finish the weekend with $26 million on its opening weekend, which is kind of a far cry from what they were expecting. I think the studio was hoping for $40 million. $28 million isn't bad, but yes, it does dethrone Barbie due to it being a new film. Blue Beetle is standing with 76% on Rotten Tomatoes with the consensus saying that led by Zolo Maraduena's magnetic performance as the title role of the Blue Beetle, the film is a refreshingly family-focused superhero movie with plenty of humor and heart. 
and audiences tend to agree. Right now, the audience's uh, rating on Rotten Tomatoes is at 92%. So critics and audiences agree this is a good time at the movies, and it's certified fresh. But the film still faces like an uphill battle. Like I said, in order to make its budget back, it's going to need to start getting word of mouth before its theatrical run finishes. At $104 million, they've only made about a quarter of that money back. So we'll be interested in seeing how well it does in the coming weeks. It won't bomb like Shazam or The Flash, but I don't think it's the prophetical cultural moment that Black Panther was. So we'll see how it does. I hope that Max also gives this movie a chance. And I really do want to see Jaime Reyes in future films. I will say that. Now, for filmmaking factoids. We talked about the first-time director, Angel Manuel Soto. Originally, Soto met with Warner Brothers to pitch a standalone Bane film, pretty much in the vein of Joker. Gunn and Safran liked Soto so much that they pivoted from Bane to keeping him on as the head of Blue Beetle instead, which I think is pretty good. I mean, now that I think about it, I would really love to see what a Bane film looks like, and perhaps maybe that's something that they'll explore in the future. But for now, Soto gets his opportunity to direct a big feature-length film, and it turns out pretty good. Now, Blue Beetle was supposed to be an exclusive for HBO Max, which is now Max, without a theatrical run entirely. I think the decision to release it theatrically is a good one. I really did enjoy my time there watching it in IMAX. But I don't think it's necessary. I think this is a movie that can be enjoyed from the comfort of your own home. Bruno Marquezine. She plays Jenny Cord in Blue Beetle. Originally, she auditioned for the role of Supergirl in The Flash. That role obviously went to Sasha Kaye, but I think Bruna may have actually made out better in the end. The Flash obviously was a big-time bomb, and it looks like it's a dead end for the cast of characters and actors that worked on that film. And Sasha Kaye, I hope she gets work in the future, but I think the movie did her no justice, and Bruna Marquezine got to work on a better film because of it. So... You know, things work out in the end, and her as Jenny Cord was not a bad uh, performance whatsoever. The last filmmaking factoid I have for you today, Palmera City. That is the city that this movie is based in. They made it up specifically for the movie. It's the fictional hometown of the Blue Beetle, and it was created as a way to give Jaime Reyes his own version of Gotham City or Metropolis. The inspirations for the city are designed from Miami and from... Tokyo. So you see a lot of neon, a lot of sky rises, but then you also have the beach and the Floridian Hispanic cultures and the barrios, as you will, of the city on the outskirts. And I actually kind of like that. I like that it's in its own fictional hometown, so it doesn't need to be tied into any historical landmarks or characters like Peter Parker and stuff where they have New York City in their strangleholds. This is a completely unique and new town and it works here. Aesthetically, it also matches like the 1980s vibe of the film. And with that last factoid, that brings us to the end of our spoiler-free discussion of Blue Beetle. I enjoyed my time in Palmera City and discovering the power of family with the Reyeses. But what about you? Did you see Blue Beetle? Will you go see it? Let me know on social media or on YouTube. On Twitter, or X as Elon likes to call it now, I am at GilX87. On Instagram and threads, I'm at Gilly087. You could also follow the channel on YouTube. Just search Post Credits with Gil Garcia. 
And if you haven't already, please drop a follow and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify so you don't miss an episode. Like my previous reviews, if you wish to push on to the spoiler discussion, please stay after the credits. I will see you guys next week when we go Forza Drive with our need for speed, and hopefully we won't burn out in a split second. (laughs) So that's a bit of a tease for next week's episode. I think gamers will really kind of dig those puns. This was Post Credits with Gil, and as always, go see a movie. This is a spoiler alert. This is a spoiler alert. All right, let's kick off the spoiler review by talking about Carapax, aka the indestructible man from the comic book. I mentioned the weakness of Victoria Cord and the decision to cast Susan Sarandon as the main antagonist of the film, but I didn't really talk about Carapax. And it's because it's really hard to discuss the complexity of this character without going into spoilers because of the decision that this character makes towards the end of the film. When I watched this movie, I just immediately thought, you know, Carapax could have been Obadiah Stane to Iron Man or Yellow Jacket to Ant-Man. Just a disposable, templated clone villain with no motive, no uniqueness, or anything really to grab our attention. There's a lot of superhero tropes that are being highlighted about the villains just being the hero just in a different color. And that seemed to be the case here. However, I found it a bit tragic at the end of the movie that we actually get to peek into his horrific past and how Victoria Cord kind of ruined his life. I think that that's a very interesting twist and a way to go with this character. I would have loved to get that insight much sooner so that like the cathartic release at the end of the movie when he decides to sacrifice himself to take out Victoria Cord, I think it would have been a much greater moment had we had known much, much sooner that Carapax was this, I wouldn't call him an anti-hero, he's still a villain, he still does some pretty heinous things in the movie, but I do think that it adds to his character quite a bit, and I think we could sympathize with his motivations at the end. It is a pretty cool twist that kind of turns on the disposable clone villain trope, and it makes this uh, a little bit more unique from other films that have done something like this with their villains at the end. The movie does have a lot of humor and a lot of comedy, And some of the biggest laughs I got in the entire movie came from when (laughs) Nana shows up at the end of the movie. Nana, who's been known to be this, like, you know, sweet, gentle abuelita who loves soap operas and morning cereal and stuff like that. Turns out she was a guerrilla fighter (laughs) when she was younger. And so in the third act, she goes fucking ham. <laughs> we see shots of her like holding a Gatling gun, taking out hordes of enemies and stuff. And she holds no bar. She is literally like cussing in Spanish. She literally brings life into the third act that you're like, what the fuck am I watching? <laughs> but it's so fun and outrageous. And I kind of dig that. And it makes sense because, you know, in the story where we learned that there was a big rebellion and that there were, you know, Latinos who came to the country that were fighting for their place. And she undoubtedly being an immigrant, 
had to fight to stay in America, in Palmyra City. So I think that adds some complexity to her character without her being just a, a slapstick or like a punchline at the end. It's pretty, pretty hilarious. And I really dug Nana. <laughs> I hope she does come back for a sequel. Let's talk about that scene where Jaime gets captured at the end. Obviously, Nana comes with the rest of the family and they save Jaime. But I found it kind of strange that that same exact scenario played out in Mutant Mayhem just a couple weeks ago. <laughs> All the heroes get strapped up to a giant mechanism where they're being milked for their blood. And eventually they get busted out by their family members. It's the same exact plot as Mutant Mayhem. <laughs> that, that plays to more of my criticism of this movie. It is following a bunch of generic superhero stereotypes all crammed together. And the fact that it kind of ripped off from a movie we've already seen just a couple weeks ago is kind of interesting. <laughs> now, I have also mentioned the humor in the movie. I think the best scene in the movie for me was when Jaime Reyes finally fuses with the scarab and seeing the family's reaction to his body getting disfigured and, and horrifically like ripped apart and stuff. And they're overlaying like this ranchero song behind it while everyone's freaking out and cussing and you have Nana saying a prayer on the side. <laughs> it's really hilarious. And I, I think it brings a lot of humor and charisma to the scene. It's definitely the standout. I, I do wish that they might have kept some of that away from the trailer because I think that scene would have been way more hilarious had we had not seen any part of it. But I do think the point gets across pretty well. And it's hilarious to watch. Yeah, absolutely a, <laughs> a banger of a scene in this movie. I do like Jaime's initial flight through Palmera City. It gives us a good look at his dynamic between him and Kajada. Early on, Kajada is like this calculated and trigger-happy AI that's likely killed a bunch of people in the past from ancient Egypt and stuff. And while Jaime is more of a reluctant, inexperienced, naive college graduate who's not very experienced in combat or fighting. And this ultimately culminates in a cathartic character arc for both of these characters, where Jaime ultimately defeats Carapax on his own volition when Kajada gets, I think she gets disabled for the fight, but then it has to be Jaime that defeats Carapax on his own. But then when he finally defeats Carapax, it is Kajada that helps Jaime see the humanity behind Carapax, and she's the one that convinces him to save Carapax's life. It's a good twist from earlier on in the movie where Kajada wanted to kill Carapax, and here it's Jaime that wants to kill Carapax, and both of them ultimately decide to, to leave him alive, and they both see how tragic his character backstory is. I like that it's kind of a bookend to his character arc in this movie. Now, one element of the movie I think that will get audiences emotionally choked up or at least the Latino audiences, is the connection of Jaime to his father in the movie. About halfway through the movie, Jaime loses his dad when Victoria sends an assault to bait and capture the Blue Beetle at his home. And prior to that, we're given relevant information about Alberto Reyes's pre-existing heart condition. At the start of the movie, we find out that Alberto Reyes had a heart attack while Jaime was out in school and they didn't want to worry him. They didn't want him to come back from school. He wanted him to focus on what he needed to succeed as a student and as a person. But in the end, when Alberto dies by that heart attack, the film 
really does a good job of staying clear of some of the superhero origin tropes that we have seen. You know, the Uncle Ben's and the T'Chaka's and stuff. It gives the character's parent a death that's kind of distinguishable. It's something that Jaime himself could not have saved or resolved because obviously it was a heart attack. It was going to happen naturally. It isn't an explosion. It isn't a gunshot. Jaime was not going to be able to save his dad no matter what. And it is kind of tragic in that respect. But then the movie kind of goes back into that superhero trope. There's a scene later on where Jaime is strapped to the machine and he begins to hallucinate and imagine himself in this higher plane of existence speaking to his father one final time. It was very similar to when T'Challa speaks to T'Chaka in Black Panther. One thing that I really (laughs) scratched my head about, I was like, okay, the death was actually kind of poignant, but then this, it's supposed to be more of an emotional payoff, but I don't think it's necessary, and I think it really does border on creative theft. (laughs) I didn't really like that dialogue with him and his dad at the end, just because of the Black Panther usage back in the day. Now, I vaguely touched on some of the supporting characters, like Milagro, who is his sister, and Jenny Cord. Uh, Milagro has some good banter with Jaime throughout the film, and in the third act, she takes more of an active approach to setting her brother free. You know, she gets Ted Korg's gauntlet, which serves as a shield and a big fist, so she gets in on the action and, and she begins to kick ass. I really did enjoy the familial rivalry between her and Jaime. It really did feel real to me and kind of close to home. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, some of the dialogue here kind of resembled that of me and my sisters when I was growing up, that there's like this little rivalry, us giving each other shit for things, <laughs> making fun of each other. It feels really authentic, which is more than I could say about his romantic arc with Jenny Cord. I do feel like their arc by the end of the movie is a bit forced. It's a bit cliche. And I think maybe if they knew that they were definitively getting a sequel, they might have held off until the sequel because... At the end, they share a kiss and they fly off into the sunset and whatever have you. But I didn't feel like it was necessarily earned as well. There are moments where they are flashing the fuck me eyes to one another, but I don't think that they had enough screen time together doing mundane things to make them feel like they knew each other truly. They just fell in love by chance just because of the situation that they were thrown into as opposed to them just genuinely falling in love just because they knew each other with some backstory and some history besides the romantic arc i think jenny is more than just a stereotypical damsel in distress there are scenes where she's self-sufficient she's resourceful and i think bruna marquezine actually handles the material well albeit her character is sidelined in the final act of the movie for quite a bit of time. I would love to see what they could do with these characters going forward in a sequel, potentially. I don't want to see him team up with Aquaman quite yet. I don't want to see him in the Justice League quite yet. Let's get a Blue Beetle 2 before we can get a team-up movie with him thrown in. That's what I would love for this DC film franchise going forward. So I'm very optimistic. I think James Gunn has everything working out in his favor now. This is the first true turning point for the studio, and I hope they can capitalize on the good word of mouth and the positive reception that they're getting from Blue Beetle. That's going to wrap up our episode for the week. Once again, I want to thank you for listening and supporting the show. I will be back next week. And once again, go watch a movie.